So, as I was recording this episode, the the charges in relation to the Brianna Taylor case came in. Um, no officers are charged in relation to the the death of Brianna Taylor. Um, the only charges that have been filed are against a single officer for uh, wanton endangerment of 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 neighbors in the apartment since many of his shots were errant and hit the walls um i think this is a horrible outcome i think this is an incredible amount of of disrespect for the life of of brianna taylor and for her family um I'm incredibly disappointed in our in our justice system that this is the result. And I think especially since, um, I mean, in the context of recording this episode, which is about black women being forgotten, um, it, it goes along with the narrative that has been shown again and again that the system does not care about the lives of black people. If a innocent black woman can be shot and killed in her own house and there is absolutely no accountability to the police officers involved, then that is a loud statement that from that city that her life didn't matter. And that is exactly what this this recent movement has been about. This is exactly the kind of things that we are looking to change. So I just wanted to express my feelings about that uh, in this episode. Um, and I hope that I hope that something better can come out of this. But I think it'll take a lot of work for that to happen. But know that I am not satisfied with this. I don't think any of us should be. And I support the movement. And I support Black Lives Matter. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Singing for Survival, the Capoeira History Podcast. This is Desconfiado. So today's episode is going to be a little different than the first few that we've done here. And... It's due to the organic nature of how I've been researching these topics. So this started as an episode solely on Dandara, the wife of Zumbi. However, as I was researching, uh, some issues and current events within Brazil were brought to my attention. A Brazilian listener named Ricardo informed me that there's been a debate within Brazil on whether or not to include Dandara in the pantheon of the fatherland and freedom which is a museum for national heroes within Brazil. This debate is fundamentally centered on the legitimacy of oral histories as compared to written ones. And I think that makes it a really important topic for us to discuss as capoeiristas. In capoeira, most of our history is preserved and told through oral traditions like songs and stories. So it's important for us to not discredit oral histories as less than 
written histories, which is kind of fundamentally the problem that has uh, arisen from more of a Eurocentric view of how history is recorded and told. So in this episode, we'll be talking about Dandara and another figure named Luisa Mahin, and how both racism and sexism affect the way their histories are told. Like I said, I think this is a really important topic for us to discuss in the Capoeira world. Um, but more than that, I think it's an incredibly interesting story of both of these women and an eye-opening perspective, especially for non-Brazilians and especially for um, white Americans like myself, on how the cultures of our countries and you know European countries before that has affected the way that histories are taught to us and therefore how we perceive our histories and also the people within those histories. With that being said, I want to be very clear. I am not an expert in this, this, this field of study. And I don't mean to represent as giving the whole answer or the whole picture. I can't possibly do that in the span of a, of a podcast episode. I'm merely opening the door to this perspective to give you food for thought and more things to research yourself. The purpose of this podcast has never been to have it be a one-way exchange. Um, I've always wanted to have a community learning effort, and this episode is no different. So with that, let's get into our story of Dandara and Luisa Mahin. Before we get into the overarching discussion on the the issues surrounding the oral histories themselves, let's start today's episode by briefly going into who these two women were. Due to the nature of their histories, there isn't all that much information available on either of them. Nevertheless, they are both very important women of color in Brazilian history because of what they represent. Dandara, as I've mentioned in a previous episode, is best known as the wife of Zumbi dos Palmares. Like Zumbi, her origin is largely unknown, though there are some stories that tell of her being born in Brazil and coming to the Palmares as a girl. And this is similar to what most people agree on for Zumbi's origin story of him being born within Brazil and then making his way to the Palmares. In the Palmares, 
She was said to be a fierce warrior and participated in all of the major battles with the Portuguese and Dutch. In addition to being a warrior, Dandara was also a mother of three children with Zumbi. There are stories as well of her helping to care for elderly and sick in the Palmares, showing her importance went well beyond just being the wife of Zumbi. Dandara of course participated in the final siege on Makaku and was eventually captured. It's said that after being captured, she threw herself from a cliff alongside other palmarinos rather than be captured and forced back into slavery. And I'll, I'll say that there's, there's likely a fair amount of myth mixed in with this history, as is natural in, um, in these, these types of stories. Um, but particularly since the jumping from a cliff um, aspect also appears in some histories of Zumbi. But primarily, Dandara is remembered as a warrior woman, and for that reason has been a powerful source of inspiration for many people in the Capoeira community. But beyond these uh, these few details, there's not really much else known about Dandara. Most of the sources that you can find essentially repeat these these uh, these few points um, in in slightly different ways. And there's a reason why that is. And we're gonna see the same theme be repeated with our with our other figure here. Um, and we'll come to see as we go through this episode that the reasons tie into the way fundamentally that these histories are recorded in the first place. Now we'll travel forward in time a little over a century to the early 1800s to talk about Luisa Mahin. We know about Luisa through her son, Luis Gama. Luis Gama was a famous Brazilian poet and abolitionist who used his knowledge of law to help free over a thousand enslaved people through the courts during his lifetime. His story is incredibly interesting, and I'd really love to take the time to dig into who he was uh, and how he came to be in the position to, to free the people he did, but we'll have to save that for another time. Gama wrote this about his mother, quote, I am the native son of a black African woman, free of the Nago nation, whose name is Luisa Mahin, pagan, who always refused baptism and Christian doctrine. My mother was short, thin, beautiful, the color of jet black unglazed, teeth white like snow, haughty, generous, a sufferer, and vengeful." End quote. Luisa was a grocer by profession, which gave her a lot of access to her community. And this led to her being involved with some of the organizing of rebellions within Bahia. Most importantly, she was said to be involved in the Malay Revolt in Bahia in, uh, in January of 1835. In Salvador at this time, there was a growing population of Malays, or African Muslims. Inspired by both their religious teachers as well as the recent Haitian Revolution, they planned a revolt against the government. Unfortunately, news of this plan got to the authorities, and, thereby losing the element of surprise, the uprising was defeated. Luisa, as well as other leaders of this revolt, were able to escape persecution, and it's said that she ran to Rio de Janeiro, leaving her son Luis with his father. Since then, Luisa Mahin has been a symbol of resistance in Brazilian culture. 
It's rumored she participated in other revolts as well, such as Sabinada, which was an abolitionist rebellion led by a military officer a few years later. But again, as in the case of Dandara, not much else is known about Louisa beyond that. There's, again, several sources that you can find that talk about her, but they're essentially all variations on this same few points that I'm talking about here. So, we see from these descriptions that though Dandara and Luisa Mahin were alive in very different times and thus did very different things, they're similar in that they are both symbols of resistance in Brazilian history. And on top of that, they are black women who symbolize resistance in Brazilian history. This makes them important not only to Brazilian identity, but also to capoeira culture, because so much of capoeira culture is about resistance. But I, I emphasize here that they are both black women because that plays a large role in the emphasis that history has put on them. And that is what I want to bring the central thesis of this episode around to. But here at this stage, now that we've outlined who both Dandara and Luisa were, uh, I want to take a quick break and connect us to some capoeira music that talks about the life of Dandara. popular song by Mestre Bajon and uh, Carolina Suarez and this this was my first introduction into Dandara. This is the first time that I heard about her and um, kind of led to me trying to find out a little bit more about who she was and this song basically covers all of the points that we went over earlier. It talks about um, her having three children it talks about her being a, a warrior. It talks about um, the final assault on on the Quilombos where she killed herself by throwing herself from a cliff. Um, and most importantly, it, it talks about her story being forgotten or lost. Um, and that's, that's kind of the way that we talk about people like Dandara, people like Luisa Mahin, they're their stories being lost to history because of the 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 biases inherent in how we how our histories are recorded 
And, and this all ties in precisely with the main point of this episode, where I want to look into how these biases exist and how they relate to the current debate over the inclusion of Dandara and Louisa Mahin into this, um, the, the pantheon of the fatherland and freedom. The Pantheon of the Fatherland and Freedom is a museum dedicated to the memory of important figures in Brazilian history. It was opened in 1986 and was inspired by the death of Tancredo Neves, the first elected civilian president after the military dictatorship. So in this museum, there's the so-called Steel Book, and in this book you have recorded different names and biographies of people that were that were inducted into the Pantheon. So for example, Zumbi was incorporated into the Steelbook in 1997, uh, but the first female figure was not inducted until 2007. And this was uh, Ana Neri, a nurse and heroine of the Paraguayan War. But still, all the way through 2018, there wasn't a single black woman inducted into the Pantheon. And this kind of starts to paint a picture of there being some sort of biases inherent in this pantheon, and we'll, we'll examine that as we go forward. Um, but in 2019, both Dandara and Luisa Mahin were approved for inclusion in the Steelbook. However, this sparked heated debate within Brazil. Some people argued that the places in the pantheon should be reserved for more real black female figures. As we talked about uh, briefly when we went into each, uh, each woman here, most of their histories are preserved through oral traditions, and there are very few written records of either of these women existing. So that begs the question, did they really exist? How do we qualify who is and is not historically legitimate. And on top of that, what kind of biases are existing in the pantheon of the fatherland and freedom that would cause there to be no black women inducted from 1986 all the way through 2019? To answer these questions, we need to talk about how African and indigenous histories are kept and the kind of biases that Western academia holds against them. There's an African proverb that goes, quote, until the lions have their own historians, the hunting stories will continue to glorify the hunter, end quote. This is an excellent summary of how historical record has been colored by the European and American historians that wrote it. Most of the histories that I've been taught, speaking as an American, follow the written records of these Western authorities. And I'm not saying that that makes them incorrect, necessarily, but it certainly affects which stories are told and the way in which they're told. This is particularly evident when we consider the history of Africa and indigenous nations and peoples. European scholars have historically had a very negative view of African history, the people, and the importance of their nations. Hegel, in 1956, said, quote, Africa is no historical part of the world. It has no movement or development to exhibit. 
end quote. Trevor Roper said in 1963, quote, Africa had no history prior to the European exploration and colonization. That there is only the history of Europeans in Africa, the rest is darkness. Her past, the unedifying gyrations of barbarous tribes in picturesque but irrelevant corners of the globe. End quote. These scholars took the absence of written sources to mean that Africa had no historical legacy to speak of. Just because the African people did not record their histories in the same way as the Europeans, they disregarded them. I think this is similar to how people react to others who speak a different language. Many times, people make judgments on the intelligence of others who either don't speak their language or who speak it poorly. And I think this dismissal of a different historical method is similar to that. It's a different paradigm of historical records, so rather than trying to understand it, these scholars simply dismissed it as worthless. However, I don't want to chalk up this denigration of the African people and their history uh, as just ignorance of these scholars and of the Europeans who, who encountered them. After all, Greeks, Romans, and Arabs had written about Africa long before Europeans and Americans did, but they did so with more of a sense of curiosity and desire to know. It was much different than the, the really harsh uh, negative aspect, like the quotes that we just went over uh, a moment ago. And I think that's, that has a lot to do with why Europeans were in Africa in the first place. So th these European countries were entrenched in exploitation of the African continent, first through the transatlantic slave trade, and then through their colonization efforts after that. This gave incentive to belittle the African people to justify their treatment of them. And this is something that we see pop up in many different places uh, throughout the history of slavery uh, by these European nations. And you don't have... you. You can look at the, the European churches as a great example, since they were giving the justifications of bringing the African people to, uh, to Christ, essentially. They saw the Africans as pagans, and through slavery, they were essentially, or they were saying that they were saving them from their pagan ways. And so they were, the, the church was giving them their stamp of approval that what they were doing is moral. So there were a lot of different efforts by these European countries to justify morally the institution of slavery like this. And the effects of this, this, this denigration have been long-lasting especially since colonization followed so seamlessly after the slave trade ended. It wasn't until the 1950s that activists within Africa have started to change that and reclaim their history. Now, at this point, it may be tempting to say that these scholars simply didn't value oral traditions because it was so different, and maybe that's why they viewed the African cultures the way they did. But I think, I think it goes further than that. 
Um, so I want to give a quote by a former director general of, uh, of UNESCO, which is a United Nations organization, uh, Amadou Mbo. He says, quote, Although the Iliad and Odyssey were rightly regarded as essential sources for the history of ancient Greece, African oral tradition, the collective memory of peoples which holds the thread of many events marking their lives, was rejected as worthless, end quote. What I'm trying to get at by including this quote is that European and even American histories all have some elements of oral history, some elements of legend and myth that has worked its way into their national identities. The Iliad and the Odyssey are a great example of that, since when you think about the history of ancient Greece, um, most people who have grown up in a Western education system associate these things. And the Iliad and Odyssey, they're, you know, they're, they're stories of myth, they're stories of legend, but even then, they are considered important to the history of ancient Greece. Another example is King Arthur. King Arthur, even though he is a, a fictional character, is very deeply tied into a lot of elements of European history, uh, particularly uh, British history. And today, in, in the halls of British Parliament, there are images of King Arthur and some of his actions painted. So clearly, King Arthur is considered an important historical figure uh, in European history and in British history, even though he is not necessarily real or didn't necessarily um, exist in that sense. Another example is Robin Hood. Robin Hood is, is someone who is kind of the amalgamation of a few different people uh, in history, yet he serves as a really important figure of justice and equity. So we're, we're starting to see that all of these figures we consider important to the, the historical legacy of these different places, um, even though there's a heavy amount of legend associated with them, even though in many cases they're not necessarily real people. And we can extend that into American history as well. Um, how many people have heard of the story of George Washington and the cherry tree? You know, that's the whole I cannot tell a lie story. There's no evidence that this ever happened. This is something that most people agree is, is made up. Um, let's look at Ben Franklin. Uh, if you if you ask people what what they think of when they think of Ben Franklin, first thing that comes in their mind is usually flying the kite and you know discovering electricity. But in reality, electricity was something that was already known about at that time, and there were other people that were that were studying it. And there's really no evidence that Ben Franklin even did this. But still these are the stories that we tell and they're they've they're an important part of who these historical figures are yes george washington never cut down a cherry tree but that story is, is kind of a way to convey a part of his character same thing with ben franklin um though these events didn't necessarily happen they they're they're deeply deeply ingrained and we they're 
we still talk about them in, in school and, and in our historical discussions. So what I'm getting at is the common thread between all of these examples is their white European men. And that's not to say that they didn't do incredible things or that the only reason we talk about them is, um, is because they're white European and men. However, their racial and gender identities encouraged their stories to be told or enabled their stories to be told. We've already talked about how European scholars viewed Africa and its history. So it's clear that chances of them legitimizing important African figures is slim or even recording their stories. And I think we can see similar effects to this in the pantheon of the fatherland and freedom. Um, I was curious when I was first reading about this, uh, this, this museum, that um, it took so long for first a woman to be inducted. You know, there wasn't a woman inducted for um, just over 30 years. And how long it's taken for a black woman to be inducted. So I decided to go through and take a look at who has been included and what type of people are included uh, in the, the steel book. And I found that of the 54 names inscribed in the steel book, 89% are male and 76% are white. In comparison, only about 46% of Brazil's population is currently considered white. History and the scholars who record it have, as we've discussed, a bias towards these white European male figures. They consider them to be more important, and they're more likely to have their stories told. They're more likely to be remembered in the traditional way. There's more written records of what they did, and that leads people to give them more historical legitimacy because they're following along the same paradigm as a lot of these European um, or European taught scholars have have operated. And that brings us back to the subject of the inclusion of Dandara and Luisa Mahin in the Pantheon. Being women of color, the cards are already stacked against them in terms of their histories being recorded at all. First, much of their remembrance in oral tradition, as we've discussed, is often dismissed. Furthermore, them being black women during the time of slavery makes them much more likely to be overlooked by historians of the time. Recently, many black women in Brazilian history are being rediscovered through the work of ethnographers, meaning these biases have certainly led to many histories being lost. And... When you hear people talk about, say, Dandara, especially in the Capoeira community, and especially in songs like we discussed a little earlier, a lot of, a lot of the discussion is about how her story was, was forgotten, how her story was lost. And this is a product of who exactly was recording that history and what they thought about black people, and even further than that, black women. We, we've demonstrated biases 
of European scholars against uh, against African people already. And in these times, that is going to go even farther for women. So the question then becomes, do I personally think that that these women should be inducted? And I don't know that I can really say as a non-Brazilian. I care a lot about Brazilian culture, and I put a lot of effort into trying to understand and internalize it. But ultimately, I'm an outsider to the culture. So it's hard for me to say who is important enough for this kind of cultural recognition. But what I do think is that considering these women not real enough for the Pantheon is doing them a massive disservice. And I don't think saving spaces in the Pantheon for better quote, better black women is in, is the right mentality to approach historical figures with. And on top of that, I think these ideas are directly tied to the racism and sexism that has affected the way we remember history. We are living now in a time where the histories that we are taught are a product of the systems that came before us. And it's very easy to see that these systems have been heavily influenced by racism and sexism. So in order to correct that, in order to have better histories, we need to understand that just because a history does not follow the same standard that European scholars have set does not mean that they're not real, does not mean they're not historically legitimate, does not mean they're not important. And I think the argument that these women are not historically legitimate enough is buying into that, that racist and sexist attitude. With all this being said, one really important question remains, and that's what do we do about this? Especially as people in the Capoeira community which has such a rich tradition of oral history through songs. And I think that one of the most important things we can do is learn about the history, the events, the struggles, the people, and not just from traditional academic sources, but by studying the songs we sing and the music we play, by talking with masters and older instructors to learn about the stories they were told and the stories of their lives too. Learn about ethnography, and the current efforts of scholars to better appreciate and incorporate the oral traditions of both African and indigenous cultures. And finally, try to be conscious of your own intrinsic biases as you learn and as you study. As an example, in this podcast, I am looking at mainly historical figures in Capoeira history and more broadly in Brazilian history. As I plan my episodes, I need to ask myself, am I only choosing men? Am I overrepresenting white-slash-European people? Am I overlooking or devaluing oral histories? We all have hidden biases that are imprinted on us by our upbringing, our schooling, and our culture. But by, but by being aware of this bias and checking it when we can, 
we are less likely to propagate it to our friends, our family, and our community. And we will better have an appreciation for the people that history in the European, in the written sense, may have overlooked. So this brings us to the end of our discussion today on Dandara and Louisa Mahin. And this was, I think, a really powerful subject for me personally. Um, I did not expect this research to take the direction that it did, but I'm glad to have been exposed to uh, to this this debate and this discussion within Brazil. And I think it's very important that especially as, I mean, speaking for myself, as a person who is a, a white American man who obviously has a considerable amount of privilege in my life, to understand the shortcomings and the biases inherent in the histories that I've been taught through my life. And it makes me think about, um, about you know, the parts of American history that I may have missed. And I think it opens up a lot of a lot of additional avenues for learning and for really understanding the the different cultures that have been systematically oppressed throughout our histories. So along those lines, one common thread that I mentioned as I was talking about both the, the stories of Dandara and Luisa Mahin is that there's not a whole lot of information available. There's not, there's not a whole lot we can find. So I want to ask all of you who are listening um, what stories you have been told about either of these women or what connection you have to either of them. Were, were they an inspiration to you? Did, they, did you see them as, as someone who is important to either your personal development or your your life in Capoeira, anything you have to share. I'd really like to compile these different stories um, in order to to have this, this community knowledge. And so I personally can learn more. And so let's let's end today's episode on that note. As always, if if anyone has any questions or anything that they'd like to contribute, please feel free to send me an email. My email is in the description of this episode. I'd really love to hear to hear your thoughts, to hear what 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 comes to your mind when we talk about these stories. And so, thank you as always for sticking around to the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I as I enjoyed doing the research. And I'll see you next time. Corajosamente, amargamente, segura as mãos de Dandara. 
promete mais uma volta E Dandara chora 